Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Sedalia, Colorado, about 45 minutes outside of Denver, Colorado, at the Cherokee Ranch and Castle, a stunning 3,400-acre working ranch and sanctuary. It's part of a whole nonprofit charitable trust with an amazing amount of history. And I'm talking to you actually from this Scottish-style castle that has been lovingly restored and maintained and available to the public as part of the, the nonprofit work that they do. But of course, I mentioned the word castle which has an amazing history. And joining me now, the executive director of the Ranch and Castle, James Holmes. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, and it's such a pleasure to have you here. Peter. I mean, driving up here with you today on Rattlesnake Road, uh, <laughs> right? Wanted to give you the authentic experience. You did. I mean, we are, you know, it's hard to believe we're so close to Denver when you see, see where we are. That's the amazing thing, and people really are, I think, um, somewhat stunned when they first see the castle and recognize that, we're just literally a stone's throw away from, from Denver. Now, some history. This was once a personal private residence. Yeah, it was the pers- personal residence of Mr. Charles Johnson, who was a developer in Denver and uh, constructed by Burnham Hoyt, who uh, was the architect that did Red Rocks Amphitheater. 
which I love Red Rocks. I mean, I've, I've been coming to Red Rocks since 73. That's scary. Um, but then it became property of somebody else. Yeah, in 1954, Tweet Kimball moved here from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah, but she cut a deal. She cut a deal. Yeah, she uh, was going through a divorce and uh, made, a, made a bargain with her uh, soon-to-be ex-husband. And his only uh, requirement was that uh, I'll buy you any home you'd like as long as it's west of the Mississippi. Well, that was not a very happy divorce, that was <laughs> So basically, she started the original real ex-housewives of Tennessee. She did indeed. <laughs> Except it was here. And this is, I mean, this is amazing the way it was built. I mean, this, because first of all, when you see this up on the hill, just to look at the logistics of how they built it. Yeah, and you know, the materials, uh, mostly made of rhyolite stone uh, that was all um, excavated here locally, much of it on the property and then there's quite a bit of petrified wood in the construction built, built of the property. In. Yes, sir. Wow. And that was also taken right from the property here. Now, are, looking around this ranch and this castle, one woman lived here? That was it? Yeah, Tweet and her two sons. So she was a single mom raising these two kids. What did they uh, have it rough? <laughs> yeah, they definitely had the best backyard, no doubt about that. Yeah. And she just lived here. Yeah, this was her, her home. Um, she called it her house. Uh, it is a castle, a 15,000 square foot castle. But she uh, operated a cattle ranch here that we continue to operate today. And that was really her purpose was to establish the ranch. And she brought in those cattle from Texas. Yeah, they're the Santa Gratuitas breed from the King Ranch. And it's the first American registered cattle breed uh, in 1940. Um, Richard Kleiberg, uh, Robert Kleiberg, excuse me, was able to... Uh, to come up with the breed, and it was a crossbred of three-eighths uh, Brahmin bull and five-eighths Texas shorthorn. Wow. Now, what did she know about cattle? You know, her background was horses, much like mine, and she'd seen the Santa Gratutis uh, being demonstrated at the Kingland horse sale uh, before the Second World War and told her father that, you know, one day I want to raise those cattle. Daddy, she, I want one of those. And sure enough, she uh, made it happen. How many were in the first batch that came up? Um, she went to the King Ranch um, and eventually bought from another uh, breeder down in Texas and started off, um, I don't know the composition, but typically uh, a starting cattle rancher will, you know, come up with a couple of bulls and usually 25 uh, females per bull and uh, to start a herd. And so I think her situation is probably something similar to that. And how, grow, how, how large did it grow? Uh, when she was here, 900 head. Uh, we're at about 200 now. Uh, but she had quite a bit more land to work with. Uh, its peak is about 9,000 acres. And, so in addition to being now a charitable trust, and an educational facility, you're a working ranch. We are a working cattle ranch. And what we see our you know, future, we just went through a 10-year strategic plan. And uh, what we really want to do is really focus on agricultural education. And we feel as, uh, like in many major cities, as development continues to leave the center of the city, um, a lot of the agricultural uh, sites, a lot of the private ranches are starting to disappear for homes and housing developments. And we think our place is going to be really special as time continues to move on. Tweet's idea of, you know, an education center around agriculture will be more important. Well, perhaps the most important thing she did before she died is to make sure that nobody could mess with the land. Yeah, she was really smart. You know, she struck a deal with Douglas County and created the first conservation easement that the county uh, became engaged in, which has now become a very important part of Douglas County's work is preserving open space. And this was the first property. And so there's some restrictions to construction that relate to our programming only and give us this great mission to be able to carry forth Tweet's legacy. So let me guess, no condos. No condos, <laughs> no strip malls, <laughs> no car washes. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
like the name Executive Director of the Castle. That's I like that cool. too. That's pretty cool. You can you live with that? <laughs> I can live with that. When when Tweed Kimball came here, she came in 1954, yes, right? Yeah. She lived until 1999. Yes, and she lived, this was her home. By herself, because the kids grew up and left. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple of, uh, actually three other short marriages along the way. Uh-oh. <laughs> Did they ever find the bodies? Uh, no, I think um, those are good kept secrets. <laughs> Plus, I mean, when you, when you look at a castle that looks this way yes. and sits on the top of the hill with an unobstructed 360-degree view, yes. And it's designed this way. It leads you to believe maybe there are some spirits running around. Well, yeah. And if you talk to people around here for long enough, uh, you'll hear a story or two uh, about things that have happened. And so, like with any good castle, you know, that does exist. And do you believe them? I do personally. We had a very convincing case last last year with a young little four-year-old Native American girl that was here from the Pine Ridge uh, Indian Reservation that um, swears to her grandmother, uh, trembling, that she saw a lady in the castle. And when she came into the conference room over across the way in the, our six-car garage, she walked in the room and she looked up at a portrait of Tweet and she said, that's the woman that was in the castle. So she convinced me. Well, the woman is actually looking at the castle right now, isn't she? She is. I mean, when, when she actually made plans, she was a planner. She was a planner. And she made plans to be buried here in a, in a monument that is like looking down on the castle. Yes, she designed it. It was built in her lifetime. And after her death, uh, Raphael Miranda, who's our ranch manager, and her older son, Kirk Kimball, uh, rode up uh, Cherokee Mountain and found a piece of petrified wood. And uh, her, her, she's there, and petrified wood is there to give her safe cover. <laughs> but, the, but the good thing about this place is you do use it for educational purposes. Uh, it, it's, it's a foundation. It's a charitable trust. Uh, and people can come and use the facility. They do in a variety of ways. We uh, host uh, over 40 weddings a year, so we become one well, of the... that's charity. Yeah, we'll become one of the... You know, it's, it's like one of the big three things they say for people in their lifetime. One of them is their wedding day, and so we try to make those memories special. But we also do a lot with the uh, 4-H, uh, helping kids understand where food comes from. Uh, it doesn't come from the store. That's right. And uh, so it's always a thrill to have kids come out and be able to work with the cattle and to engage with the animals we have on the property as part of our mission. And, do, and does the cat, do the cattle participate in the weddings? They do not. We haven't had that request yet, but we might consider it for the right price. Do a Blazing Saddles wedding. There you go. I mean, That's come on, right. it could happen. It could. It certainly could. But, but when people come up, what are you researching? What are you working on specifically? So we have a very active uh, Cherokee Ranch and Castle Science Institute. And by the way, the name Cherokee. It's not, it doesn't come from this area. It doesn't at all. One of the questions most people ask when they show up here is, you know, were the Cherokee Indians in Colorado? And we say, no, they weren't. Mostly Ute Indians. But we have a couple of uh, archaeological sites on the property from the Utes. What it was was that Tweet brought with her a lot of the Tennessee culture. And so everything on the property, every pasture, every building, everything has a name. And most of those names tie back to the history of uh, Tennessee and the Cherokee people. And nothing whatsoever that mentions her, her original ex-husband. No, other than a photograph here or there in the castle. She actually hung a photograph? Yeah, it was, you know, he was quite a, he was quite a uh, substantial person. He was involved in the Foreign Service, and so, yeah. She, but he got a deal where he was saying, I'll buy you any house as long as it's a million miles away from me. Well, he was afraid she'd talk about him because Tweet was very outspoken. And so, you know, back then, uh, the whole society thing, he wanted to make sure that he, you know, I think she did all right, though. She did, yeah. She really left a, a legacy, and I like to say that I think she was a person of tremendous faith that she would bestow upon the people of Colorado a gift like this and have the belief that people would come along in future generations that would uphold her vision, and we're really working hard to you do that. You know, it's that. interesting. We, we see when Warren Buffett says he wants to give most of his wealth away to charity, yeah. right? 
Bill Gates the same way. Yes. When she did it, that didn't work well with the family, did it? No, there was definitely some conflict, you know, for a short period of time when she with the two made, sons. Yes, yeah, that's right. When she first made the decision, um, she worked through that, and um, it was something that I think um, probably fortified her desire. And, and for me, anyway, I think it helps me understand really how precious the responsibility is to to make sure that she was proven right in the long run. And when people come up here, they can work on a various number of projects. Yeah, we have the archaeological sites here. We have the ranch operations. Uh, certainly, you know, she was an extensive... And people can come up and volunteer. They can, yeah. Uh, that's the backbone of our whole operation here, is we have an incredibly talented, dedicated volunteer corps. And we wouldn't be able to do what we do without our volunteers. Our, we've, we've even got um, Tweet's original, uh, well, I shouldn't say original, but Tweet's uh, former butler, John Lake, and... Uh, Meg Anderson, his wife, who is also Tweet's caterer, who um, is at her 45th year of service to Cherokee Ranch. And so really benefit from uh, the people that are dedicated to volunteering here. But in the interest of clarity, it's not a hotel. It's not a B&B. &B. You, don't, you don't come up here to stay. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So you come up here to visit? Come up to visit. Uh, come Get up to scared events. by the ghost and, and go. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe in it, you might, you know, you might look close and you might see it. You never know. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. There's so much history here, so who better to talk to than the historian himself, uh, who's been here 35 years, I believe. John Lake, how are you, sir? Very good, sir. Uh, what brought you here? Um... Chasing uh, my wife, Meg Anderson, before she was my wife, and I caught her. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we came out here, and she was catering for Tweet Kimball. And, the woman uh, who owned it. Yes, and so who did many parties, and I was trained. Well, I have to say, this is a castle that seems ready-made for parties. It is, perfect, yes. And uh, Tweet was a master of, of partying. She, great hospitality lady. And what was her goal here? Her goal? Other than partying. Well, <laughs> um, she was very involved in all of the functions of Denver. She was with the Acquisitions Committee of the Denver Art Museum. She was on the school board of Douglas County here. And so she was very involved in every aspect of... I suppose here. that if you're living in the castle... Philanthropy that comes knocking. Absolutely, yes. And, we, of course, we turned it around the other way, too. <laughs> well, now you, you're taking donations. Yes. <laughs> but here's the thing. You're the head docent. But also, are you the former butler? Yes. So you know all the, we're, we're, we're all the bodies. I'm not going to tell you, Peter. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> but But the thing is, you knew her probably better than anybody because you had day-to-day -day contact with her. Yes, and as my wife did, Meg did also. Yeah, and we were a great team, actually. She was quite the character. Brilliant lady, just brilliant. She could converse with anyone about any subject. Your business, of course, obviously travel. She knew very well. She traveled the world. She sold her cattle all over the world, Australia, South America. Well, she lived at some point in London, too, right? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. In fact, the uh, we're looking at the artwork right behind you. She acquired those two grace and favor portraits in London about 1950. Wow. 
Amazing. <laughs> and and how old was she when she died? 84 years old. Wow. January 14th, 1999. Wow. And her thought process was probably pretty clear until then. Oh, it was sharp. Absolutely. Sharp. Absolutely. Yes. Physically, she was suffering, but sure. not mentally. But she made a decision, and the decision was, I'm going to make sure that what I've done here carries on right. in a way that no one else can come mess it up. Yeah. We had a meeting of the board of directors here when she was alive, and when they they came out here of the dining room, uh, the past chief justice of the Colorado Supreme Court said, well, John, we've saved it in perpetuity. And that was it. Yep. Done. And nobody can touch it now. Yep. Now you have a job to do to keep it going, though. Exactly. And how do you do that? Uh, tours, uh, of course, weddings. Uh, it's so romantic here. Uh, did but, you get married here? Uh, we did. You did? <laughs> yes. Meg and I got married here. <laughs> but we've been friends since 1957, so we've had other mates along the way, but uh, we've, we've been very, very good friends all this time. That's great. Yeah. All right, but people come up and they tour it. What's the exactly. most significant piece of history that you tell people about? Oh, dear. I would say the uh, castle itself uh, is designed by Burnham Hoyt, and it's a masterpiece of architectural design. Uh, it encompasses 500 years of design. You're here in the Great Hall. Uh, it is a 1450-style room. The dining room and the Churchill room are 1550-style. So as you go around, all of these rooms are of different time periods. So he's encompassed 500 years of castle design in one building. And he did that before she ever got up here because she saw it when it was already finished. She knew it, you bet. But it fit perfectly with her. Did she ever add to it? No. Now, that's interesting. People who buy houses today, they just want to gut them and add to them. <laughs> no. Right? No, this is a beautiful piece of work. But she wouldn't touch it. No. And never added anything. What could she have added? Well, some ranch, no, they... some houses on the ranch mm. or some buildings. Oh, they were already here. No, they were all here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the only thing she added was cattle. Well, the only thing she added was her memorial garden when she passed away up there. <laughs> That's the only thing. Well, we have a pole barn down in a, right. another pasture, but those are minor things. And that was a big deal for her to, to make that building over there. Yes, yes. And it's beautifully designed. And you visit that too? We do. We're very close to her. Do you talk to her? Yeah. When, <laughs> did she talk to you? <laughs> So. But you talk to her. <laughs> but we certainly have a sense of her, you bet. So, John, you're walking around the castle talking to yourself? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> of course. And all of the other 40 people following me. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go on this tour. Wow. <laughs> but is the, is the tour open to the public? Oh, yes, absolutely. We do three days a week right now. And uh, we average about 45 on a tour. Uh, we have usually three docents with that, so we uh, tell stories, and then we walk around through all the rooms. Is there a charge for that? Yes. How, how much is that? Oh, $15, I think. $15, and then they get to hear you talk to her. <laughs> yeah. Lack, I know you're doing it. You do it, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Where did you come up with that? <laughs> you opened the door. You opened the door, John. Riding along in my automobile. 
my baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Earlier in the show, we were talking to James Holmes, who's the executive director of this castle and ranch, talking about all the different work that they're doing. And now let's get down to specifics with Al Cook, who's the founder of the Cherokee Ranch Science Institute, who just brought me my very own piece of petrified wood. I haven't seen this since I was in junior high school. (laughs) And I never knew where it came from then, but now I know where it came from because it's right here. Right here on the ranch. Yeah. so So what exactly are you working on up here? Well, I am the geologist for the ranch, and I have been for the last 15 years. Um, I uh, started the Science Institute because um, I'm an incurable uh, solver of puzzles also. Uh, And um, the ranch is loaded with uh, science when it comes to geology. And archaeology. And archaeology. And, uh, of course, the petrified wood kind of falls under geology. Well, let's start with the petrified wood since you just gave me a small piece. I love it. There's a lot of it here. There is. And the reason is uh, Tweet, uh, of course, allowed people who asked to come on the ranch. But, uh, you know, it was a private uh, ranch for the last 60 years. And so people don't come and pick up things um, like they do in other uh, more open, unprotected areas. So about uh, 2010... Um, one of the uh, volunteers was out looking at uh, lots of things geological, and he found the big logs, um, which people sort of knew about, but never mapped. Of petrified wood. Of petrified wood. And, and have you been able to date how far, how many millions of years they go back? About 56 million years. Not 55? Not 55. How can you be that precise? Well, because we uh, took a sample... Uh, and did some radiometric dating on it that's very near these deposits. And it came out to 55.6 million years. Okay, now you realize I failed science in high school, so help me out. How was it formed? The petrified wood, uh, when it was originally wood, were trees living along streams. And then you would have a very large flood, and you'd undercut the banks, and the trees would fall in the river during the flood and be carried downstream, stripped of their branches and so on, and then come to rest on a sandbar. And there they'd stay. And whatever. And then the sand kept coming and buried them. And then they, uh, once they were buried and stayed under the water table, they couldn't rot. And uh, most of the wood... No oxygen. No oxygen. It's it's an oxygenless environment, uh, anoxic, we call it. And the wood that stayed above course was had oxygen and then it just rotted away and was lost you know the famous story that i I talk about all the time because it's so fascinating to me from from an from an archaeological point of view is a ship that was the pride of the swedish navy called the wasa uh, that was on its maiden voyage in fact they just launched it in stockholm like i believe in the 1500s or maybe even the 1600s and it was fully loaded with, with with men and ammunition and food and supplies and cannons and it wasn't properly balanced, and a stiff wind came, and it sank right there in the harbor. And it stayed there yeah. at the bottom since until like 1956. And they realized because there was no oxygen and because the, the, the water was so pure in the Stockholm Harbor, it hadn't decayed. But they knew that if they brought it up, it would rot immediately with the oxygen. Yep. So this is an amazing story where they actually built the museum over the boat. Hmm. 
before they ever raised it. Yeah. And you should, if you haven't seen it, you need to go see what they did because now I'm beginning to understand what oxygen does to wood. I would yeah, enjoy seeing it. If you follow the Black Sea research now, they're finding all of the boats that sank in that anoxic uh, sea yeah. uh, at the bottom are just almost perfectly preserved. So this Perfect. is the geological work you're doing. What about the archaeological work you're doing? Well, about three years ago, I brought an archaeologist um, onto the ranch, a professional. Um, but we only want to deal with professionals. Well, they, yeah. he, he, before, I think we had a number of people who are interested in things on the ranch that were archaeological arrowheads, things like that. But, right. but nobody had really looked at the ranch in detail. And I had walked over these things for years. And I thought it was time to look at it. So I brought him out to look at our Indian rock shelter, which is on the other side of Cherokee Mountain. And in doing so, he uh, found many, many other sites other than the actual shelter itself that had been excavated back in the 70s. And uh, now when I, he's trained me so I can walk around. And I found my, I, and I found a quarry, uh, it's rhyolite, it's the same rock that makes up this room. Indians aren't known to use rhyolite that much. It's a little softer than they like. But uh, we have found all kinds of tools in that quarry and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with... The tools that are still intact? Yes, yes. And uh, there's a story about Indians and how they solved left-handedness. They tied uh, the left hand behind their back and made them use their right. One of the first tools... That's was... what happened when I was in elementary school. <laughs> I was left-handed, but they wouldn't let me write with my left hand. One of the first tools we found in this quarry, when you picked it up and you put it in your hand... The only hand it fit was the left hand. So, now you tell me: is that was that a myth that was true about the left? No, hand? No, that was the one rebel. <laughs> that was one, the one rebel in, in, in the location. If I said, I'm not doing that, the contrarian Indian. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, what are you doing with all this stuff now? Well, we're getting ready to put out uh, three scientific papers this year. Uh, the first one is on the mineralogy of the petrified wood, and that piece that I gave you has opal, it has chalcedony, it has quartz, and all in different uh, forms. And so uh, one of our professors that we work with is writing a paper on that. So I'm holding a piece that goes back 56 million years? Yep. yep. Wow. <laughs> now if it can just survive my flight back to New York. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, second paper will be a geological paper that I'm writing on uh, the rock that's on top of uh, Cherokee Mountain. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no My next guest is billed as a freelance writer, but that doesn't tell you the story. Uh, I've known Rich Grant for about 30 years. Uh, you couldn't come to Denver, or you wouldn't come to Denver without talking to Rich because he was all things Denver. In fact, he's just written a book called 100 Things to Do in Denver Before You Die. And since he's still alive, he's on the show with me today. <laughs> Hi, Peter. I will also say, in the interest of full disclosure, that about 25 years ago, I was in a car with Rich driving to Keystone, was it? Keystone, uh, Keystone Col Colorado. Right, and you nearly killed me, but I, I'm, I forgive you. I was the envy of every hotel and uh, airline, I think. <laughs> I almost killed Peter Greenberg. <laughs> in those days, I think you might have a point. Uh, but... When you talk about a place like this, 
this is a hidden gem of Denver when you think about it. There's a, there's a, actually there's a lot of things around Denver that most people don't see. They go straight up, they see Denver in the rearview mirror, and then they think they're going to go skiing, and that's it. Or they they stay in the, the downtown area. But we um, very fortunate we had uh, a very progressive mayor around the turn of the century, and he bought uh, a lot of he bought Red Rocks. He, uh, they bought Lookout Mountain. They kind of created a uh, mini national park system that was owned by the city. And one of our uh, beautiful parks is just uh, up the road of, a couple miles away, Daniels Park. They have a buffalo herd there and gorgeous views. Uh, of course, the, the best views are right here at the ranch. I mean, they really are. It's stunning. But most people, you know, you mentioned they, they, somebody wants to call it the locker room of the ski country because when they call it Denver that way because people don't realize how much great history is there in Denver. How much Within a 50-mile radius of Denver is so much history that tells the story of America. Yeah, we always said that uh, it's a Disneyland. I mean, you want a train ride? We have real trains that go over a 100-foot trestle, and we have the highest paved road in North America. You can go up to the top of uh, 14,260 feet at at uh, Mount Evans. So there's there's a lot of things in a short, uh, so you can base in Denver, you can go to a Rockies game at night. We have 90 bars in uh, Lodo. We have 66 And I breweries. believe you've counted every one of them. I'm, I'm drinking as fast as I can. It's hard to keep up with them. They're <laughs> opening about every other week now. That's right. I mean, Colorado, actually Denver, has more new bars and restaurants opening up than just about any other city I can imagine. Yeah, I think, uh, well, we're right now we're the fastest growing city in the country. So... Um, We've got 8,000 apartments under construction downtown. We've got 7,300 hotel rooms under construction. So it's, it's really booming. About 1,000 people a week are moving to Denver. You know, if you base yourself just over at Union Station, which is still an operating train station, thank goodness, uh, Amtrak, the, the, the Zephyr comes in. Two trains a day. Two trains a day. <laughs> um, and I encourage people to get on one every once in a while because uh, we need them. Uh, but when you see what you've done to Union Station in terms of a combination of hotel and retail and operating train station within, well, walking distance of a block and a half, you're at my favorite bookstore in America called The Tattered Cover. Yeah. Uh, you have all these great restaurants opening. Uh, this is all called Lodo, you know? Yeah, we actually have a lot more trains. We have a train going to the airport now every 15 minutes. So we're one of the, the few cities that has that. And we have a huge uh, light rail system that is also based there. So there's quite a, a bit of traffic. Uh, we now call Union Station uh, Denver's living room because it's, uh, well, for someone like me, the entire thing is licensed, so you can carry your drink around, but you can also, uh, they have workstations. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll go no place where you can't <laughs> carry your drink around. I'm, I'm worried about we're you. We're working on that. Yes. But um, they have uh, power stations everywhere, and so people come in and spend the whole day there. It's a, it's a beautiful room. There's six restaurants and, and shops. And then, as you say, you're right, you're right in the heart of the city. I mean, I go back to my first experience in Denver when I was working for Newsweek back in 1971, uh, coming into Denver, there was the Brown Palace, right, um, and there was uh, fast food, and that was about it. I mean, you, you had you had, well, you had wait you had you had the Broncos. I remember doing my cover story for Newsweek on Floyd Little for, for those yeah. people who remember that far back. But I mean, the transformation, and you had Red Rocks. We had Red Rocks. I mean, of I, course, I, we had the mountains. And listen, three I did the sunshine. I did the cover story on Bette Midler at Red Rocks. Wow. That was 1973. Wow. You know, and it was brilliant. I mean, what, 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 what that, that facility, I mean, that, that venue. Yeah, well, we still have a lot. I mean, the Brown Palace this year, they're celebrating the 125th uh, birthday. I just drove by it the other day. It's beautiful. 125 years, the doors have never been locked. So that's, And uh, I love the way they light it inside. Yeah, well, they have that, uh, the whole ceiling is a stained glass window. It's, it's amazing. First atrium uh, hotel in the world. So. Exactly. Uh, but while you watch Denver literally explode, I mean, in terms of, 
you know, the numbers of people coming in, the numbers of restaurants, the number of opportunities, right? What's the one thing that surprised you? About the growth? Yeah. Uh, I guess that we've been able to absorb it. I, th- I guess that we've attracted people who love craft things. They love craft beer. We're now getting craft food. We have uh, chefs that are building their own farms. Uh, Alex Adele has his own farm and his own uh, makes goat cheese. So we've always um, attracted people that were interested in making something a little different. Uh, yeah, and, and the thing is, you preserved the architecture. Well, we were very lucky there. We went into a huge depression, and it would have cost more to tear them down. And we, uh, we have over 100 uh, historic buildings. It was when Denver burned down in 1864, they passed a law that you can only build a brick or stone building. And so that stayed in effect till World War II. So everything in Denver is brick or stone. And when it came to when the city started to boom, when we could repurpose those, we were very fortunate that the uh, when they were built, the only light was natural light. There was no electricity, so they all have windows, and they're all perfect to turn into uh, bars, restaurants, shops, galleries, and uh, now the upper floors are all condominiums. So we have uh, with high ceilings, uh, with very high ceilings and natural wood uh, floors, and uh, so we have this huge uh, Brooklyn-like area that had was completely abandoned and now it's completely filled with uh, new residents and you can walk uh, from rhino all the way to the baker neighborhood that's about two and a half miles and you're never out of sight of a restaurant or a bar or, or some interesting shop sounds like your kind of town yeah it's a very get out and walk and and enjoy the outdoors which are almost always nice we're talking to rich grant the uh, the co-author of 100 things to do in denver before you die What's your hidden gem of Denver? What's your special secret place that you would want to take me that may not be even in your book? I think the the uh, bike trails that, uh, you know, how you see a city is really important. And uh, we have uh, 850 off-street paved bike trails that uh, they go, they kind of give you a backdoor look at the city. You can go uh, down uh, through alleys, you go along the creeks and the rivers. And you pretty much, we, they're so natural. You can go 40 miles without crossing a street. We had a bear walk down the uh, bike path, and they caught him right in downtown Denver. It's that natural. We have beavers oh, coming he's, down. He's now riding, isn't he? He's not riding. Yeah. <laughs> we have beavers eating our uh, landscaping trees uh, along the river. So uh, we're, we're, oh, in Denver, you're never far from nature. And the best way is to get out and, and be outdoors and see it. What's the one thing about Denver's explosive growth that you don't like? Well, everybody objects to traffic, but, you know, I think that we're uh, trying to get people to get out of their cars. We're building, we have the largest light rail uh, program in the country under construction, and we're doing things to try and get people to use their own two feet or or two wheels and uh, not clog the roads. And are you a biker? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody in Denver does something. The typical Denverite has a beat-up old car with a $5,000 bike on top of it. So... (laughs) that's kind of I believe uh, that yeah. I believe that yeah, yeah so don't, don't steal the car because the bike's worth more exactly we have clearance Clarence Roger Roger what's our vector Victor now I radio clearance over that's Clarence over over Roger huh? audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre so check it out for yourself Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When I looked at the book and I, and I tried to gauge it against my experiences in Denver, you've got some really quirky, fun things in there. 
Uh, it's the, that type of town. Yeah, you know. the Casa Bonita. Well, how many how many restaurants have a whole half hour of South Park dedicated to them? Uh, Casa Bonita's they get about one million people through a, a year, and if you're laughing, you've obviously been there yourself, so you yes. know. Yes. Uh, they have cliff divers and strolling mariachi bands, and when you're hungry, you raise a little red flag, and they bring you more dessert. <laughs> but uh, kids love it, and I think it's a, a Denver tradition. And then, of course, we mentioned uh, the Brown Palace, but there's high tea there. Yeah, they do an excellent high tea uh, every, uh, uh, well, every day in, in the lobby. But it, it, it's such a beautiful spot, and they do a lot of quirky things there, too. They bring in the prize bulls uh, every year from the stock show. They take all the furniture out, and they have uh, two, uh, two bulls in there and a beautiful uh, uh, Christmas display. And this year they're going for the largest champagne cascade uh, ever, the Guinness World Record of a champagne <sighs> cascade. So. So many of your things have alcohol involved, Rachel. Well, <laughs> it's the, you know it's the Mile High City. So it is the Mile High City, and then of course the cruise room. Cruise room is uh, was opened the day that Prohibition ended, and they wanted to build a bar that had no windows. And the big story was the Queen Mary, so they were envisioning uh, what it would look like uh, on a cruise ship. And it's one of the it's on the National Historic Register. It's one of the the classic uh, Art Deco bars. And, of course, the Cherokee Ranch is on the National Historic Register. Yeah, this is an incredible uh, place. I mean, when you see it from a distance, you would swear you're in Scotland. In the, in the, cause the, the terrain is very similar to the, the uh, highlands of Scotland. It uh, is. And, it is. Uh, when you see it, it's, it's really something to see. Have you gone through this castle? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Lots of events here over the years. So. It, it's a special place to you. Yeah, I mean, they're, this area, I think, is a special. They're, they're uh, one of the bike trails. They're now building is called the New Santa Fe Trail. They want to eventually have a trail that connects from Wyoming to, uh, to New Mexico, all off-road. And one of the biggest stretches is along here now, uh, going down to Colorado Springs. So there's really uh, fantastic recreation opportunities out here, too. And then there's, keeping with the alcohol motif here, <laughs> uh, my brother's bar. Uh, my brother's bar was at uh, Jack Carrick when he was on the road. Uh, one of the places that he was always coming was uh, to Denver because uh, Neil Cassidy lived here and uh, Allen Ginsberg did move here. And so most of the places they hung out in were dive bars, and they've either been so gentrified uh, that you really can't tell that uh, you know that it was the type of place they went. But my brother's bar, uh, Neil Cassidy wrote actually from reform school asking a friend to settle his bar bill there, and they have that letter in, uh, hanging. <laughs> and it was one of the places they definitely did hang out. And, of course, there's the elephant in the room, and that's marijuana tourism. I mean, this yeah. is, I mean, talk about explosive growth. How many different facilities are there now? Uh, there's 466, I think, I believe right now, just in Denver. So it has become, uh, a, you know, a huge overnight industry. And, again, another craft industry because there's no big manufacturers it's all small businesses i love it so now they're calling it artisanal are they um <laughs> they, they could uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody has yeah yeah uh, how has that changed things I, th I think it's caused people to look at denver in a different way i mean it was the first city to um uh, legalize recreational marijuana and, and a lot of people didn't know what to expect and I remember all the news media from all over the world was here, and uh, it was probably the, the most boring story ever. There were lines, 200 people online waiting patiently by it and get back in their car and go. And uh, So, it, you know, it, it, it makes a great story, but it, it really hasn't affected uh, that much in the city. Although I will say for those people who are thinking of coming here 
and and scoring that, uh, please consume it within the state of Colorado. Yes, and in private. Uh, it's not legal to consume anywhere in public. Uh, yet they're working on that. There will be clubs, I think, in the future. But as of right now, uh, it, the consumption is, is one of the difficulties. And should you be driving a car and crossing the border into Nebraska or Arizona or somewhere else, keep in mind that they don't have that law there. Exactly. Uh, it's illegal to take it. It's illegal to take it into a national park or into the airport. There's a national forest. Uh, so there's a lot or a ski areas even. So there's a lot of places where it is not uh, still not legal. And as long as people can do it responsibly, that's fine. But keep in mind, Colorado is a singular state in that respect in terms of marijuana. You, you will you will get arrested um, in other states. Oh, yeah, of course. It, well, it, it, it's absolutely illegal to take it across. In fact, it's illegal to have it in the car um, unless uh, you can put it in the trunk. But unless it's in a concealed uh, package as you would get it from the uh, dispensary. You can't even have it in the car. So You can't even have it in your pocket. Well, no, you can't have it in your pocket if you're walking around. Right, but in your car? Well, you, you can't have it in the car. You can put it in the trunk. but uh, In the can't. trunk of your beat-up car with a 5000 bicycle, the $5,000 bicycle on top. Exactly. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Every time I go anywhere, I always want to check in with a firehouse, wherever I am, because they know everything about their community. They've been at everybody's house. They've been at everybody's hotel. They've been at everybody's castle. Um, and uh, my next guest may have me beat because he's been a member of the fire department here as a volunteer for 47 years. That's correct. Yeah. You, you and I about the same amount of time, I think, just about. Yeah, I would have had more if they would have gave me my pension years, but they didn't. So we <laughs> just got to settle with 47. And what most people need to know, and it's important for me to say this to you, is about 74% of all firefighters in America are volunteer. That's very true. And, you know, if you are wanting to really serve your community and you're in good physical shape, you don't even have to be in good physical shape. There's so many other things you can do within the department, but your community needs you. And it's probably the best way I can think of of paying back. I agree wholeheartedly. Like you said, you don't really have to be in shape. It helps for the frontline attacks, but there's lots of work in the background that has to be done. And when you're thinking about a community like Sedalia, um, things are spread out. And, and you know, you've got to worry about wildfires. You've got to be worrying about, you know, uh, drought. You've got to be worried about water pressure. You've got to be worried about response time. That's very true. We have a lot of our area out today fighting a fire in Boulder, so we're here to help protect what the paid department's left behind. So. And bottom line is when you're saying you're, you're fighting something in, in Boulder, that's called mutual aid. That's true. And we, we understand that in my department all the time. I, there's not a single department where I am that is not in mutual aid with somebody else. We, we get banged out with other departments all the time. Countywide, yes. What's your biggest threat here? Wildfire is a large one. Uh, with the dry conditions we have right now, wildfire is absolutely huge. Off to uh, our west here, we have a mountainous area of the Pike National Forest. It's definitely urban inner, you know, wildland interface. Uh, there's lots of homes dispersed through there, lots of trees, and 
the last big fire we had was the Hayman fire, and it burned 138,000 acres. And when you respond to a fire like that, you're not carrying that much water in your tanks. You can't. No. And not a lot of hydrants out there. <laughs> like none. Like, yeah. So how do you fight it? Well, big fires, you got to fight by the air. If a, if it's in the crown, a lot of times you can't even fight it by air, but you can only fight it by hand when it's on the ground and you can get to it. So uh, We're talking shovels, too. Shovels, axes, just making fire lines. A lot of times you don't have water to put out a fire. So you're doing it the old-fashioned way. That's right. And that's serious physical labor. <laughs> Big time. Big time. Um, when people come to visit you, when you're here, do you take them to the castle? Not lately, I haven't. We used to all the time. I was well, aren't very... you glad we're doing the show from here because you had to come out and see me? Yeah. <laughs> I used to be very good friends with Tweet and the ranch hands and the boys, Kirk and Richard. And Well, I would think if it, when Tweet was alive, she'd want to make friends with the fire department because... You're the, she's the only house up here. Yeah, that's very true. So, you know, response time would be everything. Yes. Were there ever any fires up here? We've never had a fire up here, per se, at the castle. We've had a couple smoke alarms uh, middle of the night, but those are okay. That alarm was working, so it was a steam <laughs> alarm is what it was. But uh, no, we've had some medicals up here, but that's it. Of course. And when you have medicals up here, sometimes you have to helicopter out. We have never, but yes, you would maybe have to. Sure. We're fortunate enough here to be close to two very good uh, top-of-the-line hospitals. So. Now, I have to ask you, because you're the fire chief, where do you go to eat here? Well, if you want a good cheeseburger, it can't beat Bud's Bar. See, I knew, <laughs> see I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. What's it called? Bud's Bar in Sedalia. It serves hamburgers, cheeseburgers, pickles, onions, and chips, and that's it. How are the pickles? Sour. <laughs> What about dinner? Well, you can just walk right out of the bar for your from your beer that you had with the locals, and you can walk right into a five-star restaurant by the name of Gabriel's. And, and, and what do you order there? What's your favorite dish? Oh, something uh, seafood. Really? Yeah. So with burgers for lunch. Yeah. Seafood for dinner. There you go. And if the alarm's not going off, you'll have a beer. There you, you got to have a beer. What kind of beer? Coors Light. Made, <laughs> made in Colorado. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 